this week on the Back Table Podcast. Once we start having to depend on somebody, um, I found in my career is that they're undependable. You know, if I, I'd rather have the ball and, you know, I think, again, when you th- I think about this, I'm thinking about this in the context of our specialty. We tend to be, you know, good boys and girls and sort of sit on the side and wait for somebody to, to hand us the ball. And the problem is, is by the time the ball is handed to us, it probably has been fumbled 12 times uh, by people who shouldn't have had that ball to begin with. So I'd rather have the ball. And, you know, it, it, again, I'd rather us as specialists, as ET specialists, grab this ball, meaning the nose and throat. This is our territory. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Back Table ENT Podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Stryker's ENT solutions offer the control you need, the flexibility you want, and enable you to deliver the experience your patients deserve. With Stryker, you gain access to the most complete suite of solutions to help make your vision of patient care a reality. From technology to training, from reimbursement tools to patient education, Stryker is there to help. Together with their customers, they are driven to make healthcare better. Learn more at ent.stryker.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everybody. My name is Ashley Agan. I'm a general ENT. I practice in Dallas, Texas. And um, joining me today, my lovely co-host, Dr. Gopi Shaw. Hi, everybody. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric ENT. Um, We have a really great show for you guys today. Dr. Madhan Kandula is an otolaryngologist, sinus, and sleep surgeon. In 2004, Dr. Kandula founded ADVENT, which focuses on the breathing triangle. Since its inception, ADVENT has grown from a solo practice with one office in Milwaukee to a thriving organization with over 240 employees operating 13 clinics in four states. He's here today to talk to us about the profound impact of the nose on the body as a whole and why the future of otolaryngology is in the office. Welcome to the show, Dr. Candula. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to be here with us today. We, we like to kick off the show with just kind of hearing a little bit about you. Who are you? You know, where are you from? What's your practice like? Tell us more about you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I was born and raised in Dayton, Ohio to a family of physicians. So my parents came over from India. I got two older sisters there. So my parents are docs. My sisters are docs. My sisters are both married. Their husbands are physicians. So lots of uh, physician influence in my background. But left Ohio, went to Duke for undergrad, went to med school out in Philadelphia, which actually is, my kids think it's my one claim to fame is that it was in the same med school class as Dr. Pimple Popper. Um, so that, that <laughs> apparently for my kids is like the, uh, the, the, like, I don't need to do anything else cause I'm that cool now, but regardless <laughs> I left, uh, I left Dr. Pimple Popper and I went off to ENT residency out in Oklahoma. And, uh, that's actually where my, met my wife, my wife's an audiologist. And so we came up to Milwaukee in 2003 and founded our practice in 2004. So the practice is, is called Advent, as you guys said. So that's a shorthand version of advanced ear, nose and throat specialists. So that's where the Advent comes from. And, uh, um, really, you know, kind of the, to fast forward through time, 2004 till 2014, solo doc, you know, one office doing what solo docs do and uh, adopting technology as it came out. So in office CT imaging, uh, balloon sinuplasty, you know, copulation, so forth and so on. I've always liked to uh, push the envelope as much as possible. Um, somewhere in the 2014 era, sort of started getting kind of 
frustrated on behalf of my patients who were suffering with conditions that were imminently in our control, and especially with office-based treatments. So specifically folks who have sleep apnea, they can't breathe through their nose, they got sinus infections. And so the simple tools that we now have available that we didn't have when I was a resident were game-changing, and yet our specialty as a whole has not adopted those things. And so from 2014 till now, it's really been trying to connect the dots between the tools and technology we have as a specialty and all of the patients in the world. Well, I'll keep it to this country, in the country, uh, who could benefit. And um, we are just getting started. So our growth is really, you know, just a reflection of the fact that there's so many people out there who are needlessly suffering from conditions that we can and impact. And uh, our specialty, ENT, as much as I love it, um, us standing in the corner, sort of looking at ourselves, uh, not stepping forward to help our patients is not doing anybody a service. And so that's, you know, sort of what I've chosen to, to take on as my life's work is I'm stepping us out of that corner and I'm stepping towards patients who could benefit from us. And um, it's a great thing. Yeah, I love that. Can you tell us more about the breathing triangle? Is that sort of the foundation or the base of this? Yeah, well, it's um, so the breathing triangle is a term that I had to coin for the nose and throat. So I think most people know what an ENT is, and you know, you kind of hear that terminology. And I mean, obviously, we're in the we're in the field, so we know it. But even the layperson knows that. But when you break out the nose and throat as an isolated unit, um, nobody knows what you're talking about. So the breathing triangle is the nose and throat. So what does that mean? It's you've had three passages that you can breathe through. And if those are working properly, your life is going to be uh, as good as it can be. And if any of those areas are working improperly, your life will be impacted. That's the breathing triangle. It's, sound, it's a very, very simple concept. As a specific example, folks who have obstructive sleep apnea, they have a breathing triangle issue, meaning they have a throat issue. 100% of the time, and I venture to say probably 99.9% .9 of the time, they, they never have an ENT that, that's in their care. And that's not helping them. Uh, it doesn't help folks who have sleep apnea to help pulmonologists and neurologists and psychologists trying to manage a throat issue. Um, so basically, the, the breathing triangle is a concept that I felt like I needed to kind of create as a category because nothing really existed. And those areas are absolutely intertwined. I mean, if, if somebody has sleep apnea, like I said, they've got a throat issue 100% of the time. They almost always have nose and sinus issues that are um, interrelated. They may not know about it. That may be something they've had their whole life. And so how are they supposed to know that it's not normal to have to breathe through your mouth when you're sleeping at night? Like, that's not normal. So anyway, we, we do a lot of education for our patients and the community, just trying to let people know that um, you don't have to live a compromised life. You know, even in residency education training, you know, we don't connect the dots well as concepts, much less for ourselves sometimes. And, you know, everything's kind of split apart. You have the otolaryngologist that just does sleep surgery. You have the rhinologist and sinus person. So you're right. It, it is something that's all intertwined and connected. But if we don't think of it that way, it's easy just to focus on that one area and then this, how it all kind of functions together. When you, you said around 2014, you kind of zoned in and, you know, started focusing on the breathing triangle. Does that mean that you don't see ear stuff anymore and, you know, thyroid? Have you kind of really, you know, honed in your practice where you're really just focusing on, you know, diagnoses related to breathing? Yeah, yes. And it was, it was, didn't happen like all of a sudden in 2014, but over time, there was sort of a gradual recognition in, on my part that these issues, I mean, basically, conceptually, these are the areas that I as a individual and we as a specialty are most needed. And uh, in order to step forward in these areas, it means leaving and abandoning things that, you know, I, I 
was well-trained in. I mean, if you follow the story there, my wife is an audiologist. Advent no longer does audiology, you know? So it was a big deal. She too saw clearly the impact we were able to make. Those are important areas that do need care. But I think as it relates to issues in the area, the breathing triangle area, the nose and throat, it gets very confusing for patient to understand where do I go to if it, in, in, whether it's sleep apnea or whether or, you know if I can't breathe through my nose do I see an allergist do I see a primary care doc do I see who do who do I see and I, I think conceptually on that topic I'm very very passionate about our specialty and when you think about allergy as a specific example there are general allergists there are um, ENT trained allergists and generally speaking, uh, because we have that problem-oriented um, surgical mindset, we take that approach to even allergy. And so I generally feel that our ENT colleagues who do allergy, they may not be as sort of in the weeds and in the books as, as the general allergists, but they're likely going to give you the best chance for success. And um, no, it's just sort of putting those simple things together. And, and even conceptually, I mean, I guess I'll kind of ask you guys a question. What, when I went through residency, nobody ever told me the, the definition of a, a healthy nose. In your opinion, what, what does that look like? What's a healthy nose? What does that mean? Is that with or without boogers? I'm curious. I've been kind of saving this question, but what, what, uh, what's the definition? What's a healthy nose? Like, what does it look like or what is it? Just, yeah, I, I, hey, I, I'm, I'm in uh, fifth grade. I'm just wondering, what can you tell me what a healthy nose looks like? I hear you guys yeah. are nose specialists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you breathe with your mouth open or closed? Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. I would say probably something about, you know, being able to breathe comfortably without obstruction and with, with just the right amount of mucus like you know like <laughs> you, you want you don't want it to be too dry but you don't want to have yeah. to you know running out of your face or down your throat yeah what else i mean you want to be able to smell your nose is good for you know being okay. able to smell heating and humidifying the air um, yeah. that you breathe okay. fil filtering the air that you breathe what do you think i don't know <laughs> i never had we we never talked about that topic and we never i never had a single moment of what does that look like or or what does a healthy airway look like but you know my definition as a specific example for a healthy nose is is uh, nose and sinus anatomy patent and lining relatively calm that's it and um, if somebody has if somebody has a nose issue, then if conceptually either there's an anatomy issue or there's a lining issue or there's likely both. Most people have both of those issues who are suffering. And so back to the kind of the point of who do you see if your nose isn't working? Why would you go see somebody who can't impact the anatomy? And in fact, don't be surprised when you see somebody who can't impact the anatomy that you're never going to hear about anatomical treatment options. And even for our ENT colleagues, I'd say if you're seeing an ENT who's an unable or un unwilling to offer office-based treatments for anatomic issues, don't be surprised that you never hear about options for those issues. And don't be surprised if the only option you may ever hear is an OR option. Which, I mean, I'm kind of preaching, but I'd say that, that it, I mean, the breathing triangle as a concept is very simple, but it's so simple that in my opinion, it kind of cuts to the core of where there's, there isn't that level of clarity um, in our own specialty. Like what specialty should be more clear about the impact and the power of the nose than otolaryngologists? Like nobody, that's our territory definitively. And yet uh, as a specialty, we have not been clear. And, and really for me personally, it's just simply, I don't, I mean, I, I can be bothered by some of these things, but it's really more a matter of what are you going to do about it? And I think with Advent and what we're trying to do is simply saying, you know, this whole situation, there's a better way. And um, we're not perfect. And, you know, I'm not perfect, but we're going to try our hardest to help the patients out there that need us. So 
I know there's 13 locations just in the average clinic. How often are you seeing patients where you're their second, third, fourth opinion, or maybe the topic of nasal obstruction or the breathing triangle hasn't even come up? And you're like, wait a second, this is the elephant in the room. It's right here. This is what we need to address. How often is that come happening? All the time. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean, sometimes it's, it's certainly patients who we're like their sixth opinion. That happens. Though, frankly, with our messaging, we, we do a lot of direct-to-consumer marketing and, and just education. Frankly, for folks who have sleep apnea, I think the, there are many folks who are unwilling to interact with the healthcare system that's broken as it relates to the breathing triangle. So as an example, if, if somebody is thinks they might have sleep apnea and they know that their friend Bob and their friend Sally, they, they have the CPAP thing and Bob tried it, he didn't like it. And Sally's, she has it, but man, that's weird. And I don't want that. Uh, and then they hear us and they just sort of hear a different conversation. Uh, they might be willing to come in to look at those issues and look at various options that might help them versus you snore, you have sleep apnea, let's slap a CPAP on your face and deal with it. But yeah, I mean, for our patients, I mean, our our why as a practice is that we unlock potential. So that's what we do on a daily basis, patient after patient. Every patient that we see who has issues in the breathing triangle is negatively impacted by those conditions in a profound way. I think we as a specialist, I just keep going back to this concept, is the simplest things that we do make the most profound changes. And yet we elevate and cherish the rare sort of fascinoma bright, shiny object. Like I did this 20 hour case and, you know, you helped one person and that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think that again, for, for what we do at Advent, it's taking the most simple things. I mean, there's an elegance to simplicity and there's an elegance to being able to do something well, but simple interventions to impact profound conditions never gets old. And yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, we, we do have, you know, more of a limited scope because we're dealing with nose and throat issues. But we're literally dealing with the most important areas in, in the body. You know, again, when you think about some of the, the concepts in ENT, I don't, I don't know that we as a specialty do a good job of just sitting there and thinking about that. So when you think about, you know, what, why am I saying that? If you think about the ABCs, if I dropped it down with a heart attack and the um, ambulance came in, they'd follow the ABCs and the A is airway and the, a, the airway is ours and the airway is your nose and throat. I mean, it's really mostly your throat in that situation. But these are profound issues. And I challenge colleagues, our colleagues in our specialties to say, what is a more profound issue than this, than, than somebody who's challenged breathing? And, and it's not just physical issues. It creates mental issues. We've, I mean, for us, we really try to focus on what's in front of us, but I, I see it all the time. We see it all the time. Folks who are dejected, it's not a medical diagnosis, depressed, which is a medical diagnosis, have downstream conditions that are related to breathing triangle issues. So what are those conditions? Diabetes, uh, heart attack, strokes. If you think about all the things that happen when somebody has sleep apnea and that's not being treated, those are repercussions of a breathing triangle that's broken or not open. And when you correct those things, it creates a profound change. And again, I just go back to it and we don't understand that as a specialty. And I guess I'm trying to do my part to, to just educate. And I, I think you make so many good points. I definitely have a lot of patients who have fragmented care because they see their pulmonologist or, or different doctors managing their sleep apnea, and then they have an allergist, and then, oh, they're coming to see me for something else. And um, it, it does feel like there could be a better way. And, you know, it's certainly by focusing on just the breathing issue and everything around it, certainly I'm sure the patients appreciate that because from that standpoint, you know, it's kind of like you have somebody that can offer you everything to kind of address that. So um, I would love to get into, you know, what it looks like when these 
possible sleep apnea patients come in. Because I agree with you, I've I've talked about snoring to patients. And sometimes when I say, well, I think we should get a sleep study or have you had a sleep study? And there's that look like, oh, like, don't even bother. I don't want to wear that thing. Like, you know, like, yeah, I probably have it, but I know I'm not going to, you know, want a CPAP. So let's not even go down that road. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's um, very, very common. I mean, you guys know that. And I mean, I personally, I don't, I mean, I don't have sleep apnea, but if I did, you know, that, that wouldn't necessarily be my first option. If somebody said, you know, this is really something you need to do and we can, you know, make you successful with it, fine. But it's not particularly a sexy or appealing treatment option. And I, I mean, that's sort of the elephant in the room as far as CPAP goes. Everybody knows that. I don't, you don't care if you're a doctor or a surgeon or you're just, a, you know, a plumber or whatever. You, you, it's just a bit weird. Um, and it's very much more, you know, accepted and adopted these days, but it is still a bit weird. But yeah, back to the, the question of what does it look like? You know, I think one of the big differentiators at Advent is we have a true team-based approach, um, meaning we have basically about four times as many physician assistants and nurse practitioners as we do surgeons. And what that means for us is that a patient coming in our door is going to see, we call them, we call our nurse practitioners and physician assistants uh, medical ENTs. So they don't do surgery. They're, they're really doing that triage, um, intake, uh, history, physical, that part of things. And the, the good news with that is that you've got a provider who's providing care at the top of their game, and they can be present with their full attention on the patient. So a new patient's going to see one of our medical ENTs, and they're going to go through our, our evaluation, which is starting with the story, starting with the history, going to physical examination, basically a very targeted approach and, and trying to understand what's going on and actually trying to approach this with a most things are simple and uh, typical, um, and some things are rare. So, you know, when you hear uh, hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, that kind of thing. So, you know, mean, meaning if it's just listening to the patient, but going down the road of, yeah, you know, if somebody comes in with snoring or is fatigued and we look and their exam matches up with that, yes, you'd be getting them set up for a home sleep study. Yep, that's true. If somebody comes in with uh, nasal complaints and, you know, you know, and or combined complaints, we're going to look to see what's going on, but likely we're going to be getting imaging to see what's going on behind the scenes, which gets back to my earlier point, which is kind of a controversial point that uh, we kind of glossed over, which is a healthy nose is not just the nose itself. It's the nose and the sinuses. Those are interrelated units. And if you separate them out, you're missing half of the situation there and it doesn't make any sense. And so one of the things we have at Advent at all of our locations is we have in-office CT imaging. That's crucial. Uh, without that information, would you treat somebody looking to see what the condition is. And if you see somebody's nose and you hear only nasal complaints and you haven't looked in the sinuses, um, I wouldn't want that. I, you know, somebody's, you know, taking me to surgery to take care of my septum and they haven't evaluated my sinuses. No, no, thank you. I, I really want to make sure that I, we understand what's going on holistically before you're going to go and intervene with me. And um, even that, it seems controversial. I don't know how it got controversial. I go to my dentist twice a year and get x-rays once a year and they would never think to intervene without uh, information, yet we as a specialty do that every day. And then you say, well, why is that? And it's, I mean, the reality is, is because point of care CT imaging has been around for 15 years, but it's poorly adopted in our specialty, not because the medicine's in question, it's because the economics around that don't make sense if you're in a hospital system. So I'm, I'm going in all sorts of tangents, but <laughs> I'm trying to step on all the, the sensitive, delicate areas and landmines that exist in our specialty because nobody seems to do it. And, and uh, anyway, long story short, back to your question, I should stick with the actual question, which is the initial treatment or the initial evaluation is with our medical ENTs. 
And then, you know, once we gather those that information, then patients are sitting down with one of our surgeons to go through a, and figure out a treatment plan that uh, encompasses the nose and the throat and uh, going from there. And we can get into further details on that, but I'm, I'm trying to trying to be a good boy and stay on point that I'm being a very bad guest, which I apologize no, for. No, no, this is great. Right. <laughs> we, we like to we like to go off. We, we just, you know, let the conversation go where it goes and we see what happens. <laughs> it's pretty much any patient with uh, sleep complaints or nasal obstruction complaints or sinus complaints getting nasal endoscopy, a nasopharyngeal laryngoscopy, a flux scope. How is that in the initial workup? Uh, is that done with the medical ENT, the PA or NP, or is it we want you to see the surgeon now, or how, how do y'all do it? It depends on the history and and you know the the headlight exam, but but most of those new patients are getting you know endoscopy. Because we're, I mean, they're coming with air, airway complaints and we're looking at their, their airway. And that is done by the medical ENTs typically. Is it most of the time because of the breathing triangle, you're getting the nose, the pharynx and the larynx on your exam? Or is it just to the nasopharynx usually? Um, usually you're looking, it depends on the situation, but most of our patients have that combined issue of snoring, you know, some, some degree of question about their oropharyngeal airway. And so, yeah, usually, typically, if you're going to, if we're going to scope somebody, it's, it's looking at the nose, the nasopharynx and the, um, and the oropharynx, the hypopharynx, but yeah. So usually, and, and I mean, they're doing an examination and, you know, I think even there, and I'd say, uh, how did I get good with uh, flexible uh, laryngoscopy by doing a lot of those when you're a PGY2? And so same thing, we, our, our medical ENTs see these sorts of issues all the time and they get a lot of reps doing these things and they're pretty darn good. I mean, I've, so it, it's comforting to have well-trained, qualified uh, teammates that are basically they can do what they do well and it allows us to step away from that and, and meaning we can focus on the things that only we could do and um that's really unusual i mean if you think about our specialty we waste and squander our highest level talent doing things that others can and should do specifically clerical work which is ridiculous but even on to um you know history taking i mean it, it, there's definitely an art to history taking but you know really at the end of the day when i'm trying to make clinical decisions i want the information i want it i want it accurate i want to know what's going on. I want the tests that, that are appropriate. And I want to evaluate that information, synthesize it, come up with a geek plan, sit down with the patient, get them educated and kind of go from there. I'd rather spend my time analyzing, synthesizing, educating, and doing uh, than gathering and uh, secretarial clerical work, which is probably 50% of what most ENTs do on a day-to-day -day basis. But that's just me. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Do you train your PAs and NPs? So that, you know, everybody's kind of like, kind of, it's like a uniform exam and this sort of information that you're looking at is kind of consistent and the same. Yeah, it's a, we, there's a training process. Uh, most of our uh, medical ENTs came to us without any ENT background and which is fine. So we can, we can kind of provide them with our, this is our construct. This is our process. And this is what, these are the things you need to be looking for. There's definitely a certain number of reps on various things that they need to be able to complete. There's basically, uh, we're formalizing right now, but there's sort of a bit of an oral exam with not just me as the proctor, but you know, it, it's just making sure that they're really comfortable and confident in their skill set. 
And then we are, yeah. I mean, I think another differentiating factor about how we do things at Advent is there's a one playbook and we're all operating off of that playbook. And it starts with the fundamental of, of the breathing triangle. Literally, it starts with that fundamental of, you know, nose and throat issues are interrelated. Um, nose and sinus issues are interrelated. Uh, we need to be able to see and understand what's going on before we do something. And uh, there's a process in order to do that. And, and the tools and technologies that we have in 2022, I mean, a home sleep study that didn't exist when I was in, in residency. And so that breaks down the barrier for us being able to access that information and really makes it questionable. Why do you need somebody other than us to um, to offer that to patients? And the reality is you don't. Um, now, there are some people who need in-lab studies. Those tend to be zebras, though, honestly. I mean, most people who are coming in with more run-of-the-mill uh, snoring, you know, the, the typical complaints we see, home sleep studies are absolutely fine. The technology is, I mean, basically in our phones and on our watches and on our uh, rings and things, we have technology that tells us very discreetly what's happening to us on a nightly basis. So it's sort of a little bit mind-boggling why we have to go 40 years back in time to think about a sleep lab, to get information documented that we can figure it out a different way. Are you reading the home sleep studies as well? Or do you work with a pulmonologist to help interpret the sleep studies? Um, both. We, we do have some sleep uh, med colleagues that will work with us. It kind of depends. I mean, we've evolved over time, so it's entirely different when you have one practice um, versus when you have multiple locations and things like that. So we're, we're kind of evolving in real time. Um, we're right in the, in the crux of basically sort of outsourcing those reads. We do do some of those still internally, but it's a kind of a, an evolution. The, the technology is pretty darn good. I mean, meaning that, you know, the, the computer generated reads are, are not hundred percent accurate, but they're pretty darn good these days. And so most of the time when somebody's over reading a sleep study, it's just confirming that there wasn't some weirdness that happened, um, you know, between the data and the, um, and the report. Basically, conceptually on that topic, as much as we can keep in our own control, not that I'm a control freak, but more just because it makes it easier. Once we start having to depend on somebody, um, I found in my career is that they're undependable. You know, if I, I'd rather have the ball and, you know, I think, again, when you th I think about this, I'm thinking about this in the context of our specialty, we tend to be, you know, good boys and girls and sort of sit on the side and wait for somebody to, to hand us the ball. And the problem is, is by the time the ball is handed to us, it probably has been fumbled 12 times uh, by people who shouldn't have had that ball to begin with. So I'd rather have the ball. And, you know, it, it, again, I'd rather us as specialists, as ENT specialists, grab this ball, meaning the nose and throat. This is our territory. It is ours to own. It doesn't mean we have to do. I think the reason we don't take it and make it ours is I think it's like, God, this sounds like a lot of medicine. It sounds like a lot of like, like it's a lot of like logistical hassle and I just want to operate, you know what I'm saying? I get it, but I guess with how we've done things or been able to construct things, that kind of medicine hassle work that you don't really want to be interested in, we've trained folks who can do that. And it's a teachable kind of a thing. And so basically, if you can create a system where the things that um, need to be done that you don't personally want to, you're like, you'd rather be doing other things, make sure that that's getting done well. And, and sort of that's the magic of what we're doing is you're taking technology that exists today. And what that allows us to do is streamline and make it really efficient for our patients and really effective for our patients. Yeah. Everyone's doing what they want to be doing, which is great. You have people who want to be doing medical otolaryngology and managing things medically are doing that. And then people who want to be doing things procedurally or in the OR are doing that. And that probably makes for a lot of happy people. 
we got a happy team. We really happy do. Happy people, happy patients. So <laughs> Absolutely. going back, uh, mm-hmm. going back to our snoring patient that comes in. So so they they got their sleep study, and you know it shows maybe they have moderate or moderate severe OSA. Um, so what happens next? If it's how do you say it? So we, yes, we're going to gather that information. We're going to process that information. We'll typically review if there's kind of typically parallel paths between the nose and the and the throat. So the throat path is HST review HST. Like what is it telling us? Is that accurate as it relates to what we're seeing when we look at you? And then describing treatment options for that specifically. But now we're we're a bit a downstream at this point because we're talking about the throat. And really, just very very simply, if somebody has say say they're what it doesn't really matter mild moderate severe or, you know, it does, you take your pick. Um, the option or the, the algorithm is pretty straightforward. Downstream, the algorithm is uh, we can use a CPAP appliance, we can use an oral appliance, or we can think towards procedures. Those are the three pathways that exist. None of those treatment options are going to work optimally if the nose and sinuses aren't working properly. Um, so let's not, we're not jumping to, to that unless it makes sense to jump to that. I mean, it sounds so simple. I mean, I, it really does sound simple, uh, meaning, well, geez, the start of the airway is the nose. Why would you bypass the nose to focus on the throat? And the only reason that that's kind of the standard of care is that people who can't handle the nose are the ones who are treating most of these patients. Pulmonologists, neurologists, psychologists, they don't know what to do with the nose. And so they just focus on the throat. And regardless, I guess back to the point that from a throat standpoint, those are the options, but we'll, we'll educate on what does this mean? What's the impact of this condition? Here are the options. Just focusing on that part of the equation, um, there's a huge difference between a CPAP or an APAP fit with a full face mask versus a nasal mask. Massive. Um, and everybody, how do you say, within the medical community, there is no dispute that the best route for um, CPAP is nasal. Nobody will dispute that. Yet the most common route for CPAP is a full face mask. Why is that? It doesn't have to do with the medicine. It has to do with the logistics and the convenience of 100% of folks who have sleep apnea have a throat that's too small for the body. That's where that issue is coming from. The majority of those individuals have nose and sinus issues that are anatomy that's also challenged. Nobody's looking at that. Nobody's treating that. And and so if you don't treat that, well, I guess we're going to have to put a full face mask on you. And don't be surprised if two thirds of folks who get you know, set up with a full face mask, don't tolerate it. So regardless, it's, it's focusing on, we got a throat issue. Here are the treatment options. Uh, but always at Advent, it's like, let's look at the beginning and let's see what's happening there. And so very commonly, if somebody has been set up for that pathway to get an HST and, and review the sleep study at the initial visit, have evaluated their nasal anatomy and evaluated, you know, do they have a deviated septum? Do they have turbinate hypertrophy, um, nasal soil body hypertrophy valve issue? What do we have there? Um, and so that's already documented. But like I said before, for, uh, oftentimes, uh, it's going to be getting them set up for imaging of the sinuses so we can see full story. We know what's going on in the nose anatomy-wise. Now we can see what's happening in the sinuses. Now let's have a conversation about what we're seeing there. And if we're seeing issues there, we're going to start there. Even if we know that you have sleep apnea, or especially if you, we know you have sleep apnea, we want you to have the best chance for success. And that's making sure your nose and sinuses, that unit is, is working properly. So Depends. I mean, like I'm kind of jumping to that other side of the equation, but that's the pathway that's sort of those two roads are intertwined. And if you separate them out, um, then you're just doing what everybody else does in uh, in treating these areas. And we don't need to stoop to that level in our specialty. So um, just going back to the nose and the sinus in terms of breathing treatment through the nose options, other than saline rinses, nasal steroid sprays, what are our options? 
Um, you mean non-procedural options for the nose? Both, both. How, you know, I would imagine everybody probably gets some non-procedural options first. Yeah, I mean, just, okay, go, going back to kind of what I was saying before, that simple, you know, basically if you have a nose issue, you have a nose and sinus issue, you've got an anatomy issue or a lining issue. So yeah, what you're describing is treating the lining. And so any medication, whether it's a nasal spray, Flonase, um, you know, budesonide, um, you name it, those are lining treatments. And yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the patient. Many of our patients are, are, have already, they've, they've come to us, they've tried rinses, they've tried Flonase, they've been on antibiotics for sinus conditions, they've, they've been there, done that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's up to us to process that, look at them and say, you know, let's, let's come after this and let's see. So typically at that new patient visit, it's evaluating what somebody's done, evaluating what the health of the lining is and determining, should we try, you know, Dimista and rent, you know, what, whatever the right sort of different angle, maybe let's try that. Let's maximize the lining treatment. Do we need to do allergies testing? If so, let's think about that. Uh, but most of the time, um, the biggest change we can make for our patients is impacting the anatomy. And so it doesn't mean that's what we, you know, if somebody can be treated with uh, lining treatments, that's fine, but most folks have a combined issue. And, and so our philosophy is really kind of an anatomy first, office first mindset as it relates to um, getting that anatomy open and keep it simple. Let's kind of go for the low hanging fruit, the lowest hanging fruit in our specialty uh, is turbinate hypertrophy. And medications can kind of take the edge off of that lining. But if we um, uh, effectively diagnosed and effectively offered and treated folks with turbinate reductions in office, just because it's so much easier from an access standpoint, we would change the state of health in this country in a profound way. That one simple thing. And it's something we all learned how to do in our first year of ENT residency. And yet the thing that frustrates me is there are millions of people out there who are suffering needlessly, um, noses that are blocked up. And it's something that takes us five minutes to do. We're unwilling to do as a specialty, not because we don't. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure there are people who out, out there who don't believe that. No, that's not true. And I understand that. And then there's the whole um, empty nose ghosts that sort of haunt our, our psyches, but I understand that too. But at the end of the day, I'd say I'd, I'd rather give somebody patent anatomy versus making, you know, having them suffer with uh, challenged anatomy. And on the topic of turbinates, how do you decide if turbinate hypertrophy is the key to kind of unlocking better nasal breathing for the patient? And as a follow-up, what is your turbinate reduction method of choice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, here's what I'd say. I am humble, meager, weak. Uh, imp it's impossible <laughs> for me to know for sure. What, is it somebody's turbinates? Is it their septum? Is that their nasal swell body? Is it the valve? Is it uh, they, they, they've got sinus outflow tracts that are tight or they've got uh, inflammation in the sinuses or the uh, allergy part of things? So there's a lot of things where it's like, ah, you know, but it's hard to give you a straight answer without seeing an individual patient, but the assumption for somebody who's coming in, coming to us with, gosh, I've got congestion. I have a hard time breathing my nose. Um, maybe it's just happening at night for them. Like when I, when I lay down and it's like the you know, left side stuff's up when I say, I lay on my left side and I flip over and, and we look in there and things look tight. Turbinate reduction is something that's going to come to the, that. That is the most likely intervention that we're going to think towards uh, for a patient. Um, and that might be a combination. Oftentimes it is with swell body reduction, uh, many times with balloon sinuplasty, if that's indicated, you know, surface and so on. But that is the key to unlocking the nasal airway. It's the simplest thing we can do. It's a very reproducible result. Um, we, we have a variety of techniques. I mean, it's sort of the, the, reality. I mean, basically a volumetric reduction by whatever means necessary is effective. 
whether that's cobalation, um, you know, whether that's microturbator, you know, I, I've reduced turbinates probably every single way that's, that's, it's possible. And the only common theme is if you do it effectively, uh, you, you get good results. And if you do it effectively, and this is, again, there's things I'm saying, some of there's, there's controversy in the nuance. So to me, what is an effect, effective turbinate reduction? An effective turbinate reduction is reducing turbinates front to back, inferior turbinates front to back. I don't know how. I don't understand the physics of those in our specialty who profess that it's only the anterior head of the inferior turbinate that matters. I took physics and that doesn't make any sense <laughs> at all. Like, how is that possible that, that that's where it's at? And I, I, I just, somebody's going to have to educate me on that one. So it, it, again, to me, we, and I'd say it started with me, uh, like to impact turbinates in, in a meaningful way. Um, we're not shy about it. It's just saying, this is an issue. Let's get it out of the way. And, you know, honestly, we, you know, if you think about our specialty and, and our, my particular practices, we do fewer septoplasties than any practice that sees, um, you know, the number of patients that we see by probably, you know, multiples, because what you'll find is when some people do care about the fact that their septums are deviated, but most people just care about the fact that they can't breathe. And if you have a crooked septum and you gain space around that, and you could do it in an office setting where somebody's back to life immediately versus having to take them to the OR, that's not necessarily your choice to make, but it's, it is your um, duty to offer that option. Meaning if you can't offer that yourself for whatever reason, you owe it to that patient to make sure they understand that that option exists. Um, maybe we can't do it here because our hospital doesn't allow us to do in-office procedures. That's a whole separate conversation. But, but regardless, I'd say that that option keeps more people out of the operating room than anything else that we do. And um, so it's sort of like on one hand, yeah, we're aggressive on how we think about turbinates and how we think about taking care of that issue, but we're much less aggressive. Very, very, I mean, the, the least likely place for us to do a procedure on a patient is in an operating room. Basically, 95% of our cases we do in the office, you know, 5% in the OR, which is highly unusual. Before we go to 95% the office, because that is super interesting, and I think that's also a big part of this conversation, just in terms of inferior turbinates, do you think differently for your patients um, that are really bad allergy patients? And do you ever worry about, you know, taking too much or how often do you have to revise? You know, those are the kinds of things that tend to always make me, I guess, be a little bit more conservative because I'm like, well, they tend to grow back. But how often do you actually see it? You know, there's there's what we've what we've been taught, and there's what you see. And what I see is that a thorough turbinate reduction. It's hard to describe. Well, what what is he saying when he says thorough? I mean, I, I mean not a bashful thorough <laughs> turbinate reduction, <laughs> an adequate reduction where there's uh, adequate patency through the nose front to back for everybody who who could benefit from that. Who's who has, who's got anatomy that's tight, especially allergy patients. The times where allergy patients fail, this is this is what I see, and this is what I strongly believe is. An allergy patient who is uh, coming to you with nasal obstruction, um, they've got an anatomy issue, likely. I mean, well, remember what? We, they've got a lining issue. If they're an allergy patient, they, they're telling you or their body's saying, I've got a lining issue. That's one thing. That lining issue over time is going to create an anatomy issue. So if you have inflammation in the lining of the nose over time, that's going to create turbinates hypertrophy. That's what happens. And, and so what, why is, does that happen? Because the body perceives the world as an enemy and is shutting it off and it's trying to shut it down. So if you try to just treat the lining issue when the anatomy is already compromised, you can't adequately treat the lining issue. You can't, even Flonase isn't necessarily going to get where it needs to go. So it is making sure that the patient's aware about what's going on, making sure you're aware about what's going on. And then in that scenario, it would be doing a thorough turbinate reduction, um, making sure that the patient is aware up front that this, you know, we, we're addressing the anatomy component of this. 
there is a lining component that is important to treat as well. And so whether that we're going to treat that with medications or immunotherapy or whatever the case may be, the optimal situation for you is your anatomy patent and your lining calm. And if we get you to that point, the likelihood for having to go back and touch the turbinates is minimal. It's not nothing, but it's as low as we can make it be. And that's good enough for me. And it's generally good enough for most patients. If you, if you just kind of just tell it like it is to them. Now, on the flip side, we say we do a turbinate reduction of somebody who's got massive allergy issues or inflammation issues, you know, just generally, they've got a much higher, and, and we're not able or they're not willing to treat that lining situation. They have a much higher likelihood of a, a recurrence of the turbinate hypertrophy. And when it is a choice that they're making, they need to understand that that's the choice that they're making. And um, when it is just, you know, some people just have inflammation and there's nothing that, that you can do everything you want and we're all helpless sometimes and they're helpless. So that those sorts of patients, you do a turbinate reduction, they've got massive inflammation, you, nothing that you're trying is helping the inflammation. Yeah, are they going to be more likely to have to have that turbinate reduction done again? People are people and people kind of absorb things differently. But if you're putting it just out there in front of somebody... I don't, I don't, I think we fear, I think as a, I fear, I, I was born or bred to fear like, God, what if I do something and it doesn't work and I'm the, now I'm the worst person in the history of the world and the patient's going to hate me and they're going to tell everybody that I'm the worst person. And it's like, no, that's, I don't think that's actually a healthy mindset. I think you can control what you can control and, and it's your, it's in your duty to control that. And then there's the stuff that you can't control and, and let that go. I mean, I mean, meaning that, you don't just like, like whatever, but I think you, you can recognize that and you can say, you know, for that patient, like I just said, if you got this inflammation issue and say we do a turbine reduction, you're feeling great. You're breathing through your nose. Like I'm doing great. I don't, this Flonase, I don't like the taste. I don't like the smell. I don't want to use it. And then you say, yeah, I, I hear you. When we look in, when we're looking in there, we see inflammation in the lining um, over time that might, you know, sort of steal away the gains we just made. I want you to be aware of that. And they say, understood. I don't care. I'll be back here in 10 years or whatever the case may be. That's their choice. I mean, what else? I don't know what else we would do about it. But I, I, sometimes I feel like we are fearful of having just honest and frank conversations with our patients. And they're like dying for that conversation. Oftentimes they want that. They can handle the truth if you can just deliver the truth. But we far too often bury the truth. I don't know why we bury it. It doesn't make sense to me. But yeah. Very well said. You know, transitioning to talking about office procedures and what can be done in the office. Do you have, you know, almost like a, a menu of options that you kind of sit down and talk to patients about and be like, look, this is the technology we have. This is what can be done in the office. And then out of all of these things we do, you know, these five things might be something that could help you in particular. Um, you know, how does that look like and what, what is on your menu? Sure. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I mean, yes. I mean, there's from an anatomy standpoint in the nose, um, the components or the areas that we consider septum, turbinates, swell body. I always feel like turbinates and swell body, they're the same thing. It's just a, a different location of a turbinate. It's a septal turbinate. But, but we're still, I feel like, is especially like still learning uh, about what do you do with that one. But basically, you've got the septum, you've got the turbinate, whether it's inferior or septal turbinate, uh, you've got the valve for the majority. Some people might have polyps and some people might have adenoid hypertrophy, but if you took the large majority, those are the components. Out of those components, and this is, it depends on the patient, depends on the situation, 
Out of those components, the, our preference as far as intervening is the turbinates first, so inferior and septal. Um, and then it depends. Septum versus valve tend to be back burner kind of things. They tend to be, the, the septum is very easy. Conceptually, every, you see it, you can address it. Um, we tend to do our septums in the OR, which there's a whole conversation around, well, why do you do that? Um, there's a reason we do that. But, but, but regardless, I'd say we tend to do our septums in the OR, which then says, what can we do with the in the office? to help you. And then you start saying from a pure nose standpoint, well, we can uh, reduce the turbinates, whether they're typically the inferior and the septal turbinate. And the valve, I basically, we assess, we uh, evaluate, and we say, boy, that's a back burner issue. And we talk to our patients who have those issues, uh, meaning that it's more of an uphill battle. In my hands, with all sorts of techniques and technology, you know, through the decades that I've been doing this, I cannot achieve consistent results with uh, nasal valve issues, whether internal or external. I can't. It's very nuanced. Um, it's a real thing. I'm I'm definitely on the the side of the uh, the fight on the valve that it, it is an issue, but if you address the internal issues first, the likelihood of you needing to address that valve is minimal. There are valve maximalists who say every patient has a nose problem has, has a valve problem. But I've seen it too many times with our patients where you see somebody with a valve issue, you see somebody with uh, obstruction internally, you correct the internal obstruction, and they're fine. They don't, they don't need anything else. And if they do need something else, Focusing on the nose, that's our algorithm. If somebody has uh, valve collapse or, or narrowing there, uh, then it's something we identify, we talk about, we say, we're going to get these internal issues uh, corrected in the office and we're going to see how you're feeling. And if you're feeling like you're where you need to be, wonderful. And if you're not, it depends on the situation, but we might consider Vivair or Latera rarely, or maybe we, we don't do a ton of rhinoplasty at this point. So if somebody really needs sort of that functional rhinoplasty, we've got, you know, uh, folks we can kind of tuck them in with. So that, that's the, the nose component. Uh, from a sinus component, as it relates to anatomy, it's evaluating the scan, evaluating their symptoms, evaluating um, their history, and putting that all together. The most common treatment that we'll offer for our patients who have um, sinus issues is balloon sinuplasty for the maxillary and frontal sinuses. The thought there is, and the thought putting all that together, but the thought there is that common sinus outflow tract. So front, frontal is coming into anterior ethmoids, maxillary is coming to anterior ethmoids. That area, if it is tight, if it is even slightly compromised, that's a domino that once it starts tipping is going to start clipping off downstream. And so if we can get those areas open, it's helpful from a pure, what I said out of the gate, you know, nose and sinus anatomy patents, that's the most key area. So if you get, if you have basically adequate outflow, adequate airflow into those areas, that impacts actual nasal breathing, which is a very controversial thing for me to say, but it's true. I see it all the time. It also just impacts the health of the nose and the sinuses. So uh, our most common treatment is balloon sinuplasty for the maxillary and frontal sinuses, turbinate reduction, nasal swell body reduction combined together. That's you, We're coming to that conclusion after evaluating all of these specific possibilities for a patient for whom they've got a deviated septum. And uh, that is something that if you didn't correct that, you're not going to help this person. We'll do that right out of the gate, you know, kind of thing. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a mindset and a likelihood uh, about how we practice, but every patient's uh, unique and every clinician needs to make sure that they, they know that they're in control and they can do what is necessary. So with 95% of your procedures in the office, what's your week or month like? Meaning, do you do two, three days a month in, with in-office procedures and, you know, one day a month in the OR? What's your schedule like? 
Yeah. Well, my schedule is super weird because I'm, I'm only clinical thir- <laughs> one day a week at this point. So I've got this weird- You're, you're um, running 13 other- <laughs> Yeah, correct. So that's that's my, my full-time job is that my- You're a physician entrepreneur right now. Yeah, exactly. But but for my for my surgeons, uh, it depends, but it's, it's usually kind of a half day in the OR a week. And then when they're in clinic, we tend to bucket it. They, they were bucketed in, into our, our, you're doing office procedures. That's sort of one block of work. You're doing, um, we call it CT clinic, which is basically patients coming in, CTs. It's basically treatment planning is that part of thing. And then you're you're seeing post-procedure patients. Those are the big block. And so from a, in-office procedures, most of our surgeons are doing those procedures I wouldn't necessarily every single day of the week, but more days of the week than not. Um, And we have a very process-oriented way that we'll offer those, Um, meaning I think the challenge for a lot of folks who try to do in-office work is that they try to uh, reinvent the wheel every single case, and you will drive yourself crazy by doing that. And so for us, it's a our medical ENTs sort of greet the patient, get you know spray them up. We'll place pledgets. So there's there's that part of the work that's crucial. You've got to get that topical stuff on board early enough for it to be working. You don't need to be doing that. You could, you could choose to do that, but that's taking you away from something else you could do. So that's our medical ENTs. And then, you know, surgeons are coming in, doing the injections, doing the procedures and, you know, kind of going from there. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a different, I mean, so our, our surgeons do do a lot of procedures, um, but those procedures are almost always done in the office, like we're talking about. Um, so their, their, their work week looks nothing like, I think, anybody else's work week that I know of in, in ENT. And it's a good thing. We try to preserve their sanity. We let we you know, basically allow them to to intervene at the right time. You know, and the right time is if you need to have a forty five minute conversation with a patient about treatment planning, about the nuance, then take the time to do that, and don't be you know looking at your watch. You know, like I'm now I'm five minutes, I'm ten minutes, I'm fifteen minutes late. I mean, how many of us have been you know sort of uh, burned out by the the death by a thousand cuts of I'm, I'm always too late. It's always like, I'm always late. I'm always, you know, I, wherever I am, I'm supposed to be somewhere else. Um, that's a horrible way to go through life. And that's like, our, I, I mean, honestly, I, I, I've been there. I've done that. And uh, we cho- I choose not to do that. And our docs choose not to do that either because there's a different way. Yeah. Do you ever have patients who, you know, are wanting to continue to see their doctor for medical management? And do you have to be like, you know, hey, that's not really our model here. So-and-so is going to take care of you all. Because I have some patients who just cling to me and I'm like, you don't really need to see me for this anymore. Like, I would cling uh, you know. to you, Dr. Iggy. <laughs> I feel like there's only one person going in my nose. There you go. Yeah, maybe you're clingable. Maybe you're, you yeah. are in fact uh, maybe so. just that, uh, <laughs> that appealing. That but, you know, s- simple things that are like, you know, we're just going to follow up in a year with an audio, like to follow some hearing loss. And um, we have, you know, advanced practice providers in our clinic that that would be perfect you know, to kind of pass off to, but patients are like, can I see you? Am I going to see you? You know? And I'm like, yeah, which, sure. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. So the, the hardest, the, the hardest two letters in the English language are N-O. Uh, yes. And you don't need to be, you don't need to be a jerk about it, but no, I mean, meaning that I think the, the challenges there are there. I mean, we hired, I hired my first uh, physician assistant in 2009. So about five years into my practice. And when I brought her on, her name is actually, is actually Ashley and she was great. 
and that's why I'm sure you're great as well because of your name. But anyway, <laughs> regardless, when we brought her on board, it was uh, yeah, it was a big deal because everybody expected to see Dr. Candula because you know what I'm saying. And so you know, we I had to figure out a way to preserve my sanity. And that was by letting her do things that she should be doing and, and saying no sometimes. And believe me, I got my ass chewed out by more than one uh, referring doc who basically in unkind words said, you know, if I'm going to send a patient to you, they're going to see you uh, or I'm not going to send patients. And, you know, in private practice, what do you do in that situation? You either say, you know, yes, sir, I'll do what you say. Or you say, I'm trying to turn the other cheek as much as I can, but, you know, kind of how I approached it was listened, understood. And then, you know, we kind of, I think we had a little bit of a unique pathway for those couple docs for a while. And then I said, screw it. Um, we're just going to do this. And I know it's not, you know, some people aren't going to be happy, but back to our patients today, they know, understand, they actually like our medical ENTs oftentimes more than they like our surgeons. Not that our surgeons are, are not good people. <laughs> it's just, they kind of, they, you know, you'll be amazed you know, to see how clearly people can understand things that make sense. And it makes sense when you have easy access to a provider who's going to give you good care. You generally aren't going to complain about that. Um, and that's for, that's true for our patients. And so they, they know it's a team-based approach. They know our surgeons are always available. So if something's going on where somebody needs us, we're there. The only way we're able to make that happen, though, is by back to preserving our surgeons, preserving our medical ENTs. Is the only way we can make sure that our surgeons can be available when when sort of the you know things are hitting the fan is that they literally are available. And so that means we don't we don't get them tied into doing things that they really shouldn't do. But it starts with somebody sort of um, setting boundaries and parameters, which uh, as as physicians in particular. Nobody teaches us to do those things. So sometimes for us at Advent, it's it's having a system that forces us to do the right thing in that situation. So, yeah. Well, and patients kind of have to get used to the way you run your practice too, right? And it starts whether it's the phone call, you know, the call room, the check-in. I mean, it's your whole team and how you run it. So this is the practice. I wanted to ask, so, you know, in terms of in-office procedures, is it hard to get insurance to, you know, is it easier just to go to the OR for uh, insurance approvals and things like that? Is it more accessible or less accessible to a patient, the in-office procedures? That's a good question. From an insurance standpoint, it, it is more challenging to get approvals for office-based procedures than OR procedures. That's a truth, in my opinion. So, but for a practice like ours, this is what we do every day. And so it's the right thing for our patients is to offer office-based procedures. And so we take that burden on ourselves. We are the ones who will fight with insurance companies and fight with our colleagues who are, you know, sitting on the wrong side of that equation, in my humble opinion, um, you know, from an denying authorizations, those sorts of things. Um, so we'll, we'll take that fight. And that fight, fight is, I mean, to me, it's... Um, we're a very mission and purpose-driven organization, and um, part of that is understanding that it's the right thing to offer these services to our patients. And just because it's a bit harder for us to do that doesn't make it less right. It just means that somebody's got to do a little bit more work, and we'll, we're willing to do that. But yeah, it would be honestly, I mean, just to state it bluntly, uh, with our practice, it would be easier for us. Insurances would have an easier time of it if we had ASCs in every metro area that we we're in, and we we're just driving those cases into the operating room. There'd be less hassle about authorization than there is for office-based procedures, which is insane. And when you think about it at face value, and um, long story short, though, I think for the, the, our colleagues who are looking at doing office procedures, 
it is an uphill battle. And, and I think that's it's a shame, but it's true. And um, there's a learning curve, which is significant. You know, it's a whole different beast getting your practice to be capable of doing office procedures well. Part of that gets to the authorization. And so, you know, there's a lot of hurdles there that you have to decide that you're going to want to clear before you even go down that road. And I would advise people listening to take that seriously and make sure like, yes, this is something I want to do. And yes, I'm willing to kind of fight the battles that need to be fought and so forth and so on. Because if you aren't clear with yourself on that, you're going to run into those barriers and it's just going to stop you in your tracks. Can you give us some specific hurdles that you went through, whether it was clinic one, clinic seven, clinic 13? You know, I mean, let me go just very, very granular and basic. So pre us doing office space procedures, we didn't. The, the most extensive procedures I did in my office before kind of balloon sinuplasty became available to do in the office would have been, you know, scopes, um, biopsies, ear tubes and adults, you know, stuff like that. You know, the typical stuff that we, you know, ENTs do in the office. But that's uh, those are like very discreet kinds of things to do in an office nose and sinus procedure. There's a, a tire numbing process that's just more elaborate than what we need for scopes and things like that. So all of those things, getting, you know, uh, at that point, my PAs like on board, getting my office staff on board, but just the actual logistics of we're going to take time to do something and learn how to do it while we're doing it. And it's going to, it's just not, it's just a very, people don't want to do that. That There's that. And then from an authorization standpoint, when balloon sinuplasty first uh, had CPT codes that allowed it to be done in the office, there were many insurance carriers that didn't cover it at all. Uh, Anthem was one specifically for many years that didn't cover it. And so it's just now, now the challenge for me at that point was thinking about when I'm sitting in front of a patient gosh, is this an Anthem patient? Anthem doesn't cover in-office procedures. Is this some, Is that something I should bring up that they're not going to cover? And so those sorts of things. Um, and so, and then it's just simply, you know, doing the annoying work of um, justifying our medical decision-making to our, I mean, at the end of the day, at this point, it is our colleagues. It's our ENT colleagues who work for insurance companies. And I, I don't mean, I don't, I mean, I'm kind of calling them out, but you know, I'd say the the system is, so unpleasant to deal with. When I say the system, I'd say the authorization system. You're taking a three-dimensional patient with three-dimensional issues and you're boiling it down into not even two dimensions. You're boiling it down into bullet points and you're having some bean counter. Look at those bullet points to decide if this is authorized or not authorized. And then you're having one of our colleagues, you know, look over the shoulder and say, you know, yep, that's what it ought to be. And then you have a, a surgeon and a patient that are simply trying to achieve an outcome. And then everybody's like, like, ah, you know, it's hard. I don't know what's going on. I know exactly what's going on. And again, we're guilty as sin on this one. So I'm, I'm going down a little bit of a rabbit hole. But to do office procedures, you've got to fight battles, authorization battles, uh, logistics battles. You know, and, and honestly, many of our, most of our colleagues are literally not able, not allowed to do these procedures not because of the medicine, but because they work in systems that literally will not allow their docs to do office procedures. So try to think about fighting that battle and, and you're not going to win. I mean, honestly, you think about like an academic medical center, um, you're not going to win that battle. You're not going to convince the, the powers that be that it's better for you little ENT to do this procedure in, in your office versus we got an OR, we got an anesthesiology staff, we got you know, nurses, they're sitting there waiting for you. And it, the economics are better for us when you take that patient to the operating room. Good luck to you, my, my fellow ENT colleague, to try to convince them to do 
what's right medically for them. So I, I think I, mean, I went in a lot of weird areas there, but I'm just saying all those things intertwine. And the only reason we can offer the care that we offer at, at Advent is that um, we aren't part of a system like that. We, we don't have bricks and mortar that we have to justify. We don't have a CT scanner that's sitting, you know, sort of in the basement that, um, that the, the system wants you to send, you know, your patients to. We can make choices. Our patients can make choices. And those little decisions over time, I mean, my, it's not quite 20 years, but over time, it's just simply saying, what's the right thing for a patient? In-office imaging, is that right for a patient? Absolutely. No question. I don't think anybody would question that concept. Office-based procedures, is that the right thing for my patients? Absolutely. Home sleep testing? Absolutely. You know, oral appliance therapy is something we offer on site at our clinics. Is that the right thing? Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? You just think about it and you just go one by, one after another and you say, yep, 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 yep. And uh, when your fate is controlled by your knowledge and kind of the, the actual medicine, the barriers that pop up are things that you just figure out a way to either blow over or go around or go over. And I think in in medicine in general, we've lost that skill. Uh, we don't know how to fight for ourselves. We don't know how to get things done anymore. And it's a problem. And that's happened over my career. Honestly, when I came out of residency, there was still, it was still back in the area where if new technology and new treatments were coming along, your goal was to figure out if that was you know, the best thing for your patient, and then you would, you'd adopt it and you'd, you'd fight to make it happen. Now those battles can't even happen anymore because all, all too often our colleagues are no longer in control. Um, it's the suits that are in control. And um, we did it to ourselves is, is the reality. And so for, for your practice, as far as, you know, having people to kind of fight the insurance battles or kind of justify all of these things, approximately how many people do you need per office or, you know, per patient group or per doctor? You know, so if I like was thinking, oh, I'm going to start an office-based practice, do I need to have at least, you know, one person that's doing that full time or what, how much work is that? Is that enough work to keep one person busy all the time? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, probably so. Depends on your volume. And it depends on your commitment. But yeah, if you're, say you're, you've got, you know, that kind of a, a, a small, pra smaller practice or solo practice or, or even a small group practice. I don't know that's a full-time job out of the gate if you don't have um, the volume there, but it's a, it's a job. I mean, so whoever's doing the authorizations for your surgeries and CTs currently, this is a teachable skill set and it's a learnable skill set by getting the reps and the reps are just Part of it is just understanding what the insurance criteria are for each specific insurance carrier as it relates to each specific procedure that you're doing. And then, you know, and understanding that and then testing it out and seeing how things go. And then, you know, sometimes we get things authorized and then they still won't pay on the back end, which is insane to me, but that does happen. So, yeah, it's it's. You need somebody who's who's standing and doing that kind of thing. If you're just starting out, whoever's doing that kind of work can do this as a, like a one-off kind of a thing. But once you get going with this, it's something that's. Um, I mean, I, I'd say for most I, most folks do a, who do a lot of in-office work that I know of tend to be you know sort of solo docs or one or two uh, people practices that just do a lot of in-office work. And I think for those types of practices that are doing high volumes of in-office work, they typically have a uh, an individual who pretty much is solely fighting these battles. You know, but that that takes a while before you have that need. But you definitely have the need to some extent right out of the gate. And for patients who cannot get insurance approval, let's say you know you've done everything, jumped through all the hoops, and it's just like, no, this is just not covered. Are there ways, you know, do you have cash basis where you can offer patients a route to get things done if their insurance company is being stubborn and not 
you know, willing to work with you. Yep. So there, there is, I mean, we, we, we will, we take the authorization battles on ourselves and sometimes we lose. So for a patient that we feel medically that, uh, let's just use balloon sinuplasty as a specific example, we feel like that would be beneficial, but the insurance carrier is denying it. Then we have the conversation with the patient as to um, this is the reality and this is the out-of-pocket that this would mean for you. And we try to minimize that bite as much as possible. To, um, and, and then a patient can make the choice. Um, strangely, back to kind of the earlier conversation or uh, uh, an angle on this is, that very same patient uh, who was denied in-office balloon sinuplasty, oftentimes, all, more often than not, uh, the insurance will approve a sinus surgery in an operating room setting. So that might be a road to go down, depending on the severity of somebody's disease state, um, which just seems obscene to me, insane to me, uh, but that's the case. It makes no sense at all. I mean, and healthcare insurance doesn't need to make sense, but that one is like, how do you explain that to somebody? And I have a heart. I mean, like literally people are like, so you're telling me they would rather me go under anesthesia and go into the operating room than have this done in the office. That is that you're trying to, that's what you're trying to tell me. And I'm like, that's what I am telling you. And like, that's insane. I'm like, yeah, that is insane. Yeah. <laughs> you, you might want to, you might, you might want to reach out to your insurance company to, to talk about their mental health, uh, because that, that's like <laughs> literally like, uh, that's insanity. It doesn't make any, and, and part of it, cause nobody ever calls it out. It's insane, but, and I, we see this all the time, but who can you talk to about that? Like, you're not going to get anybody's ear at that insurance company. They don't care. They literally don't care. Um, and it does, it just boggles my mind sometimes. And it, part of my hope, and I'm, I'm going to do a better job of this moving in, in a forward direction, is I think if, if normal people heard the crazy things that we all experience, you know, in each of our, just being physicians and surgeons in this country, it's like mind-bogglingly unbelievable, some of these things. And uh, part of the reason these things exist and they continue to exist is that people don't hear about them. They don't. I mean, if everybody knows things are screwed up in, in healthcare in this country, but they don't know that, that it's this screwed up, um, but it, it is. I wanted to ask you, in terms of somebody starting out, how do you figure out cost and equipment? Do you rely on loans? Do you uh, work with industry? H how do you get started? Because yeah, you have your microscope and your scopes in your ENT clinic, but then you need special tools and right machines and things. Yeah, to some extent, <laughs> it depends. I, I, I mean, I'm you know, fortunately or have you? I, I'm minimalist in my needs as well, both in the OR and the office. I try to keep it as simple as possible. Which is, it's good for my sanity, but it's also sort of good from a cost standpoint. But yeah, they're, they're with anything. I mean, you know, healthcare is expensive, uh, surgery is expensive, office-based surgery can get expensive to some extent. But, you know, yes, industry will work with you. You could work with industry to, to kind of soften the blow of getting things started. And they've got obviously a vested interest in, in seeing that you're successful in this endeavor. So industry can do that. Uh, you can get loans. I mean, that that in our early phases at Advent and when we started doing in-office procedures, it was just paying for it with bootstrapping is the way that uh, in other industries they call it. We're just paying for these uh, expenses through taking care of the other patients that we have. In the grand scheme of things, um, you, you do need to make sure that the economics make sense for you to even go down this road. But if they do, the numbers don't have to be extraordinary to be sufficient. And you just, you do, you need to understand it. So I don't know what that means. You know, at this point, if, if somebody's starting out and then they kind of 
look at the numbers. Look at what what is your average reimbursement for the typical case that you might be doing in the office. Look at your startup costs. Think about that. Be realistic about that. Understand there's a ramp phase. Understand that you know all of those things happen. Understand that you, the person that you look at in the mirror, is the most likely person to sabotage the whole thing. Uh, meaning when you're stuck in that first case, second case. Uh, only seeing the pain and feeling the pain and only seeing the expense and not seeing the the reward for this. Um, again, it's the person that looks back at you in the mirror is going to say, why are you doing this? Just go to the operating room. Your life will be a whole lot easier. <laughs> so I, I bet you, I mean, I guarantee you more people have been stopped in the tracks from doing an office procedures by that, by the person who looks back in the mirror than anybody else. So it's, it's not like who's going to keep you away from doing this. It, it's you more than anybody else. It's not the economics when you look around, look at it. Industry really would love to help you. I mean, again, they've got a vested interest in, in seeing you successful. Um, I can honestly stay from my conversations with industry. All aspects of industry as it relates to our specialty, because many of those folks come from other, like ortho and neurosurgery and other things like that. Consistently, when I sort of you know broach this area of conversation, they're always like, "What the hell is up with ENTs? You guys are weird as it relates to <laughs> it, 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 they, they literally because it's like that we we are surgeons and yet we have this sort of um, I don't know what it is that we have this mindset of like self. Um, loathing, like it's not just our colleagues talking to ourselves, meaning that, you know, there's this, this constant chirping of that person does a lot of in-office stuff and what's wrong with them and blah, blah, blah. And I know that, you know, medicine is, this is the right way to do it. And like people have a lot of dogma, uh, generally speaking, but in other surgical specialties, it, we, we don't have as much dogma as we do in ours. And I don't understand where that comes from. And I'm, I'm just going off on a tangent, but I, I'd say back to our industry colleagues, they are flabbergasted that we as a specialty have been so slow to adopt office-based procedures when it's what patients want. Uh, the technology's there. The economics make sense. The only people standing in the way are ourselves. It's ENT standing in the way of us doing things. And when you break it down, the truth there, in my humble opinion, is the truth there is like, I mean, I guess I, just to go full circle back to how we were all trained, I was trained in an academic medical center. And in an academic medical center, there's a, a construct that exists there that is a OR first hospital first. We all work for those things. We, you know, we are subservient. And then you go out in the real world and you find, no, actually it's not OR first and it's not hospital first, it's patient first. And, you know, patients don't want to go to the operating room, despite how, however much you want to go to the operating room and how much, however much you like to operate, they don't care. And when you give them the choice between the office or operating room, and if it's, if it's truly like you could go down this road or that road and both are going to be good options for you, they will choose office every single time. Well, other than if somebody's squeamish about office, but if you, if you know what you're doing and, and you kind of do enough, you can kind of pick those ones out of the crowd. But regardless, so the, the reason that we aren't doing more office procedures isn't because the demand isn't there and isn't because the economics don't work and isn't because the technology isn't there. It's because the system, the status quo is rigged to direct people towards the operating room, direct us to think that we need the operating room as that's, that's the only place I can really be comfortable and operate. Um, when in fact you could do this in the office, um, there's no doubt about it. I just have two quick questions. <laughs> then we'll put a pin in it as Ash likes to say, but I'm um, in terms of oral appliances, um, do you have a dentist that you work with? 
So basically, historically, we've we've had dentists that we work with. We've been doing that for a decade at this point. But currently, we're challenged because we have so many. Well, we've got multiple clinics right now, and so it's it's we're having we've had a hard time finding dentists in each metro area that we're in. So we're looking at trying to you know just bring that in house. Um, there's a whole podcast episode on this, so I'm not going to go into all the details. But let me tell you this: um, oral appliance therapy is is something that patients want if they could have access to it. And the place where they could could have access to it is actually within an ENT office. Um, and that's gonna, that is a big paradigm shift. But the challenge for dentists who are um, passionate about these, these things, sleep and sleep dentistry, is they're on the other side of the fence from the um, health insurance industry. And the health insurance industry doesn't want dentists. Um, they don't want to start that. They don't want to break that wall down because as a whole... Once we have dentists and now we're and now we're now they're they're billing through healthcare and insurance and like that's going to create like the the end of the world kind of thing. So anyway, all I can say is the patients at Advent, the large majority of the folks that we diagnose with obstructive sleep apnea, if given the choice between an oral appliance and a CPAP machine, will choose an oral appliance when they're appropriate candidates. Um, and I believe it is my duty to figure out a way to make that possible. That it's the same conversation as as office versus OR. It's not what I want to do, um, or it's what do I need to do for my patients. And in this situation, if patients had that option, they'd be choosing it way more often than they currently are. And I'm done sitting and waiting around for somebody else to solve this problem. Um, so we're, we are helping to solve the problem in our clinics. Uh, we're not there yet. It's actually one of the initiatives that we launched this year, and it's it's rolling right now. And it's it's definitely... It's a passion project for me, which means I'm, that, that's a good example for me personally of a, of a situation where I am going to take that ball and I'm going to drive that forward. And I've already, you know, there's, there's people I've had to run over and, and uh, companies I've had to run over and feelings that have been heard and so forth and so on. And I don't care. It needs to be done and we're going to do it. And once we do it, um, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, as, as, as sort of forceful as I sometimes sound, I'd say, well, maybe I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Uh, I've just seen it so many times. And, and then, then I go full circle to this conversation. I'd say, Imagine a world where, you know, you have these folks who have breathing triangle issues and you could, in a simple manner, get their noses working, get their airways open when they're sleeping at night in a elegant, simple, effective, efficient, you know, so forth and so on. Like, that's possible today. We don't have to wait on somebody. Back to my, my simple turbinate reduction, I'd say, give me a turbinate reduction and give me an oral appliance and give me uh, a world full of people with, with breathing triangles who are broken. And like, th yeah, th that's not the right fit for everybody. I'm not saying that it is, but I'm saying a lot, there's a lot of people who would be benefited from that who just simply don't have access to those options right now, not by their choice, but because that's how the system is created or it's constructed right now. And then my uh, final question. What's the youngest that you see in your clinic specifically for the breathing triangle? I'm the pediatric ENT. I got to ask this question. I, I, so basically currently we'll, we'll go down to 12. You know, when, when I started the practice, it was birth to death. Basically that's, that's was, you know, we treated all comers. Again, there's a whole episode here and I know you're, you're a pediatric, <laughs> pediatric ENT. And let me tell you something, the, the, the folks that break my heart are kids who have issues um, in these areas, breathing triangle issues, they're mouth breathers, they, they, they have sleep apnea, they, you know, so forth and so on. Their noses don't work. Um, their throats are, are too tight. 
Our adult sleep apnea patients, most of them started as children whose noses didn't work. And what that ended up doing is creating a domino effect where their airways basically collapse down on them. So if you, if it's a whole conversation our, and our dental colleagues are so much more advanced on this than, than we are, especially our specialty, but the construction of your airway is part and parcel or has to do with the construction of your maxilla and your mandible. And if those are not uh, appropriately constructed, if they're too tight for your body, that's where you get nasal obstruction. That's where you get uh, chronic sinus issues. That's where you get sleep apnea. And if you can address it at the source, which is kids who have these issues, you will, back to unlocking potential, there is no greater potential than the children um, in the world and in our country. And to see those kids suffering and who are going to turn into adults whose lives are going to be negatively impacted by this stuff and know that I could do something about that. Because I, I, there's something I could do, you could do, maybe I can convince you to do it, cause, but I don't have the bandwidth to do it right now. But very, very simply, back to those kids who have breathing triangles that don't work, they're mouth breathers. I, I go back to the same core concepts of, is it an anatomy issue? Is it a lining issue? It's an issue. Do not sweep it under the rug. Um, pediatricians should know about this stuff. If a kid is mouth breathing, if a kid is snoring, that their airway is literally crying out for you for help. Um, answer the call. Um, now, what does that mean? What does it mean to answer the call? It probably actually doesn't mean a tonsillectomy. It might. Uh, it very well may be establish a patent nasal airway. Maybe it's an adenoidectomy. Maybe it's a turbinate reduction in, in a little kiddo, but make sure they've got an, an make sure they've got anatomy that's patent, nasal anatomy that's patent. Um, and that's a good starting point. Uh, depending on how far gone or how, how long these issues have been going on, orthodontists who can do expansion of the maxilla, that's so easy in low single digit kiddos, they, they just need to be connected to the right, you know, resources. Again, I could go on and on about this one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, I wish we had the bandwidth to help those little kiddos go be, maybe you will take the mantle up at this point, but if you don't someday, I promise I will, I'll, I'll be able to, you know, once I have the bandwidth, I I'm going to, you know, get there, but I just today, I don't have it. Uh, all I can do, and I'm, I'll I'm do it here. I'll do it wherever, you know, but I think all I can do is add to the chorus of those folks who are, who are concerned about these issues in kiddos. And, and it's, that's where it starts. And I wish it could just end there. And you'd bend the arc of time and the lives of those individuals in a profound way. And back to what I was saying before about the impact and reach of our specialty this is the area, the breathing triangle. These issues are the issues that have more downstream impact than anything else in our specialty. And the solutions and treatments are so simple. If we can just focus on the things that are, if you believe that to be true, maybe you don't. I don't, I don't, not, I don't expect everybody to believe it, but if you don't, I, I'll like ask you is please entertain the possibility that it might be that way. And when, once you start seeing it that way, and maybe you'll start doing some things that way, you'll start seeing how big the impact can be. So that's my long answer to, to that question. But it's an entirely, <laughs> it's, like, it's an entire podcast, podcast episode Absolutely. by itself. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I have so many more questions, uh, and I wish I wish we we had you for a little longer. But it probably is, you know, about time to to land this plane, uh, as we say. So, uh, you know, th thank you so much for taking the time. Is there any any parting words or any take home points? Or um, in addition, do you want to leave listeners with any you know resources as far as like you know website, you know social media contact, you know where where can people find out more about you and Advent? 
Yeah. Uh, Advent, uh, and I, it's, I know it sounds hokey, but it's adventnose.com. Either knows. K-N-O-W-S or N-O-S-E. Don't matter. Nice. Uh, <laughs> so that one's easy if you want to find about the, out about the practice. Uh, me personally, I'm, I, it's a, it, it, I'm trying to be better about this, but currently I'm sort of most visible on LinkedIn. So Mother and Candula, just my name, motherandcandula.com uh, as a place to go, but it's, it's probably pretty sketchy and it might go to some weird uh, internet places. So be careful on that one. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think, you know, conceptually, if people are um, interested or intrigued in, you know, some of the stuff that we were talking about, I love talking about this stuff uh, and would be very happy to, to have conversations um, as importantly or more importantly. And I, I don't, I sort of kind of don't mean it to be this way, but I'm just going to do it. Is we we are where we are, and we're growing. And the 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 what we need more than anything right now is to find um, ENTs who understand what we're doing. Uh, we need to add more. We're gr- we want to grow further, and the only way to, for us to do that is 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 for our colleagues who are out there who might maybe what we just talked about was interest interesting for them. Reach out to me, um, and uh, you know, we'll kind of see if we can we can help. Maybe, maybe if more enough of our ENT colleagues reach out to me, maybe we can actually get to those kiddos that I was talking about before. Yeah, but absolutely. regardless, I'd say, um, and 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 even if you're not an ENT, I, I certainly this is something that I'm passionate about, that we're passionate about as an organization. So if, if you know, for my dental, our dental friends, and uh, even other specialties, I mean, a, a lot of other specialties are really interested in in this breathing stuff more so than us. And so I'm, I, I, I think there's a I think there's a movement that's starting to get created. I don't know if you guys have heard of the book Breath, but that book came out um, a mm-hmm. couple years ago. That's a, that book for for those who are like wondering, like, oh, I don't, I'm sure not quite sure what he's talking about. Go read the book Breath, and um, it gets a little like sort of zen after a while. But I think the first part of that, which just simply talks about airways, uh, is talking about the breathing triangle. So that's that's maybe a good example. But um, long story short, I'm available for people who are interested in this stuff and ready and willing and able to, you know, keep the conversation going. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Candela. I appreciate it. I'm going to check out the person looking back at me in the mirror. That's the first thing. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.